Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're going to look at Elijah and Ahab this morning. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, verse 17, we have <clears throat> Ahab and uh, Elijah getting together. <clears throat> and when, when Ahab saw Elijah in verse 17, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've, made, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your families, your father's family have, you have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Well, good morning. I want to join with Eddie in welcoming you here today. Uh, it's good to see you. We're thankful for those uh, who are visiting, and I know many are traveling, and many members here are traveling. Uh, we gather today, as has been said, with hearts that are in one sense heavy because of loss and uh, uh, from those who have suffered in a variety of ways. And during those times, there is something comforting about coming together as God's family uh, to offer up worship to Him, to find comfort in each other, but to remember that even on the days when um, the days that are less than good, the days that may even really be bad, God is always good. And because of that, we're thankful uh, to be able to offer up our worship to Him today. And one of the ways we do that is by diving into His Word and studying from it. And so, appreciate the reading this morning. Uh, as we get into our study... Sometimes, and especially for those of us who are parents, we kind of understand that uh, occasionally things happen and we kind of have to go to lengths, great lengths maybe, to get the attention uh, of our kids. Uh, one of the ones around our house that would always get attention was if we ever had to take away a phone. Uh, there was probably mo no more effective way to get someone's attention than to take that phone away for a while. I've heard stories about parents who were having trouble and so maybe they just took the bedroom door right off the hinges and, and the, the child had no bedroom door anymore for a while. Um, that's happened and then you occasionally hear the story of public shaming where maybe a child gets into, maybe steals something and they maybe all have to stand out on a street corner with a sign that says, you know, I'm a thief, I stole things, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, so, so sometimes it becomes public shaming. And then sometimes visuals will help us. There's a picture coming up. Sometimes when we can see it with our eyes, it communicates in a way that we didn't just uh, uh, sugar. You know, sometimes we don't realize how much of that, and I know this is probably in the right day to talk about sugar intake, but, you know, sometimes when you can see it on the screen, it becomes powerful to know, man, I'm eating a lot of sugar. Uh, and so sometimes it's the visual. A friend of mine, he was losing weight, and every time he would lose five pounds, he would bring a five-pound bag of sugar. He would put it on the credenza behind his desk in his office, 
Ephesus, and, and it was a visual reminder to him of the progress uh, that he was making. Another recent trend a few years ago, everywhere we'd drive, we would see billboards from God, these messages people would place, and it would be a, a quick one-liner from God. And, and a lot of those were very thought-provoking, and a lot of them were right on target and very accurate. And, and so that became something that would kind of get our attention from time to time. And so God, while not a billboard per se, chapter 15 of the story, which is where we are, if you're visiting with us today, we're looking at God's story for redeeming man. We're in the middle of the prophets. We're talking about his messengers. And so uh, today in our time, we're going to look at two of those guys. Uh, We're going to think briefly about Elijah, uh, a message of shock and awe. And then we're going to also think a little bit today about Hosea, uh, another message. Going back uh, last week, about 930 B.C., the kingdom is going to divide into two pieces. There's the northern piece, Israel. There's the southern piece, Judah. These two kingdoms are going to uh, uh, exist side by side for about 200 years. And during this time, God is going to send nine prophets to 19 different kings, preaching a message, communicating a message from God to the people, but very little progress is going to be made in turning their hearts and in turning their lives. And so, uh, Bryant read to us from the account of Elijah. Elijah shows up and he's dealing with a king that is quite corrupt. If you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 16, you get a, a little bit of information about Ahab and his rule. Verse 29 of 1 Kings 16 says, Now Ahab... The son of Omri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He's a bad guy. It goes on to say it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also had made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So Ahab is a bad guy. And so in 1 Kings chapter 17, God has Elijah communicate a message about there is going to be a drought. And when there is a drought, when there's not enough rain, then you have a famine. And so this is going to go on for about three years. And during that time then finally God is going to send Elijah to Ahab. And that gets us to chapter 18. That gets us to what uh, was just read, this idea that Elijah's going to show up and he's going to show up with a message. And, and it's going to be a showdown. It's going to be one of these things where he's challenging God's people. You remember God. Some of you probably still feel drawn toward the God of heaven. But then you've got this corrupt king Ahab, and he's telling you you need to worship the Baals. And so uh, this big verse in chapter 18, uh, verse 21, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If it's the God of heaven, you need to serve Him. If it's Baal, you need to serve Him. But you cannot ride the fence. You cannot do both. You've got to make a choice. And so then Elijah sets up this challenge. He sets up this showdown. This would have been great reality TV in that day. The prophets of Baal, they set up an altar. 
And they spend all morning trying to bring down fire to light that fire from heaven. And, and if it were, we talked about it in Bible class, had this been a ball game, about lunchtime the referees would have thrown a flag on Elijah because Elijah begins to taunt them. Uh, he would have had a taunting penalty. Notice verse 29 of 1 Kings 18. When midday was passed, uh, they raved. No, excuse me, verse 27. It came at about noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and just needs to be awakened. And see, that revved them up even more. Then during the afternoon, they're cutting themselves open and bleeding all over the place. They're doing everything they can, but there's silence. Verse 29, when midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. And so then Elijah says, well, it's my turn now. And, and most of us, we've studied this. He, he fixes the altar for God. He puts the animals on the altar. He gets everything ready, but he's not done yet. He, he says, dig me a trench. And so they dig a trench around the altar. And then he takes water. A precious commodity during a famine. And he says, I want you to wet the altar down. And they wet the altar down. And then he says, I want you to bring some more. And they bring some more. And so finally this trench around the altar is full. And he's using all of this water. And then you get to verse 36 of chapter 18. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice... Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And doesn't it seem like that would kind of fix it? I mean, this amazing shock and awe. When you've got fire coming down from heaven, Elijah prays one time. It didn't take him all day. It took one prayer to God, and God rains down the fire, and, and everybody's on board, and Elijah has them go out and kill the prophets of Baal. That seemingly would fix it. But it doesn't. In fact, to show the humanity of it all, by the next chapter, even Elijah has found the valley. Elijah is hiding out for his life. Elijah is not thinking about the power of God. By the time you get to the next chapter, and God has to remind Elijah that, no, you're not alone. There are 7,000 Israelites who have not bowed down to Baal. There's something hard about being human. There's something hard about a relationship with God, even after a mountaintop experience. And so shock and awe did not get the message through. But then the other one I want us to think briefly about comes from this little book, this minor prophet book of Hosea. During the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, this is not the first Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam number two, God uses Hosea to communicate what... The only way to describe it is to he communicates a shocking message or in a shocking way. 
Imagine being God's prophet, and sometimes we think of prophets simply foretelling the future, but sometimes God's prophets, their work was to preach the message that God wanted preached. But in Hosea's case, God is going to say, Hosea, I want your life, I'm going to take your life, and I'm going to make it an object lesson for my people. And so imagine being Hosea, and then in chapter 1, verse 2, imagine this message coming from God when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So I want you to go marry this prostitute named Gomer. She's a woman of harlotry. She's not a good one, but I want you to go marry her, and I want you to have some kids with her, and we're going to use that to to illustrate how my people have treated me because my people are people of harlotry. My people are cheating on me, and it's not just accidental. It's flagrant cheating. It's purposeful cheating. And so that's the message that comes to Hosea. Now, did God have a legitimate case? Well, look at chapter 4 of Hosea. We're not going to read all of it, but several verses you can follow along. Chapter 4, verse 2. They're swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse 3. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. Verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you've rejected knowledge. I will reject you from being my priest since you've forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. Verse 7, the more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. Verse 12, my people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's wand informs them for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray and they've, been, they've played the harlot departing from their God. Verse 16, Since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? I haven't spent a lot of time on the farm, but my wife owned one mean cow. Man, have you ever been around one mean heifer in a pasture? You, you, that, that verse communicates, doesn't it? And God says, that's my people right now. That's his case against his own people. That's why he's calling Hosea to action. And so he calls her to marry, he calls Hosea to marry this prostitute named Gomer, and he says she's going to have some kids. And one of the other things God would do is he would assign names because names had meaning and names communicated a message. And he said the first child is going to be named Jezreel, and when she has that child, that symbolizes God's unhappiness with Jehu having killed um, Ahaziah, king of Judah, in the valley of Jezreel. That happens in 2 Kings chapter 9. So, Let's name the first one Jezreel. And then the second child is going to be Lo-Ruhama, meaning not pitied, how God and how Hosea feel about Israel and how God and Hosea feel about Gomer. No pity toward them because of the way they act. And then there's a third child. And the scholars tell us that the third child is not Hosea's child because as one writer said, Gomer does not give up her night job when she marries Hosea. She continues to be a harlot. She continues to cheat. And so she's out there cheating on him and she gets pregnant. She has another child. And so the name of the third child means not my people, not mine. 
And so that's where we are with Hosea. He's married her. She's continued to cheat. But then you get to this powerful little chapter. It's verse, it's chapter 3. It's only five verses long. But this is what God says to Hosea. He says, I want you to go and buy her back. In other words, I want you to go marry her again. I want you to bring her back home because in doing that, you're going to illustrate for my people how I feel about them. They've cheated on me. They don't respect me. They haven't respected our relationship. But I haven't given up on loving them. I haven't given up on wanting them back. And so chapter 3, the first couple of verses, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who's loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. So Hosea goes and he obeys God and he buys her back. God loves His people. That's the message. That's the object lesson that Hosea has been assigned You see in Hosea, you see God's despair. Hosea 6 verse 4. You see God crying out in jealousy in this book as He thinks about the relationship and the covenant and how things are supposed to be. Hosea 13. But then I want you to notice the words of God in Hosea chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son... The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Notice verse 8. How can I give you up? O Ephraim, how can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. So God has been cheated on by His bride, but He still loves her. He still wants her. He doesn't want her cast away. It's, it's steadfast love. In, in he, Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, God makes this statement. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. That steadfast love of God. And that's what makes chapter 3 such a powerful object lesson. Go love her again just like I love my people, just like I love Israel. But again, it doesn't work. So with Elijah, you have shock and awe. With Hosea, it's a shocking illustration of how God loves His people. But what about us today? God still has a message for us in 2015 today. He still loves us and He still relentlessly pursues us. And there's irony. Only one of the nine prophets who prophesied to these 19 kings, only one of them preached a message where the listeners heard the message and changed their lives as a result. The irony is that was Joshua preaching to the people of Nineveh and they weren't even God's people. 
And it's, 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 it's sad that those who were chosen, those who had the most opportunity to listen and to hear, those who were the ones who chose to turn a deaf ear to God and what He was attempting to communicate to them. And the thing is, we must make sure that it isn't like that with us. That 1 Kings 18 verse 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? Other translations, you know, we've, we've got to make sure we're not wavering between what the world offers and between what God, what God wants us to know. Another translation says, how long will you not decide? How long will you falter between? The New Revised Standard says, how long will you limp along? and You're, you're torn, you're divided, and you can't even walk correctly because of that you understand God's most powerful attempt to get our attention, it doesn't happen through shock and awe with Elijah. It doesn't happen uh, with a story of Hosea going and marrying a prostitute. That's not God's most powerful way to get our attention. His most powerful attempt to get your attention and mine happens through the cross. And we enjoy, during the month of December, we enjoy thinking about Jesus taking on flesh and arriving here in the flesh and living here among us. And we we think about that because that was necessary for Him to one day die on the cross and be raised again. And so the cross, it's, it's God's most powerful demonstration of the idea that He loves us and that He's always ready to take us back. Hosea's life object lesson about I want you to go love her again. I want you, even though you've been done wrong, I want you to do right by her. We're reminded of 2 Peter chapter 3. It helps us understand why Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 3 about God's patience and His desire for no one to perish. It's because He loves us. It's because He wants us back. It's, it's the reason that He gives us time. And through that same word where we read about God's patience, we read a message whereby God is still speaking to us today. And the question for us is the same as it was for for Israel. Will we listen? Or will we ignore His message? Bradley does an excellent job of picking out songs that, that, that accompany our thoughts. And, and the, the, the song that we were singing earlier, it asked the question, I don't know why so many things seem to get in the way. And, and that's our lives today. So many times, so many things seem to blind us or, or cause us not to hear what God wants us to hear. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, we're not Israel, we're not in rebellion. And that's true, we're not in rebellion. But full-grown rebellion didn't just immediately happen, it happened a little bit at a time. And we've always got to guard against being closed off to God's message. We've got to stay open to the idea that every day that God wakes us up to a new day of life, He wants to see us be a little bit better than we were the day before. Positive life change every single day. So this is where we conclude this morning. If God were going to come down and, and sit down with us and, and try to set a tone for, hey, we've got one year ending, we're about to start a new year, and we like new beginnings. And so if God were going to sit down with us and try to set a tone for the new year, what would He most want us to be working on? 
What would God's message be for uh, this family as a church family? What would God's message be to each of us as individuals? See, and that's an important way to think about it because your greatest area of improvement might not be mine. Mine might be completely different than yours. As you hold up His Word against your life today, is there a message that God needs you desperately to hear? Might He be saying, okay, there's something in this new year, something that you've been doing that I'd love for you to stop doing if you want to be closer to me. Or maybe there's some places you've been going this last year and you really need to stop going to those places this next year. You need to change where you go. Or maybe it's an area of ministry where as you read and you're being convicted by His Word, there's an area of ministry that that you realize God would love for you to be involved in and maybe He would be talking with you about getting involved in that area of ministry where you haven't. Maybe it's sharing the good news with, with someone. Maybe it's a specific aspect of your life where He's calling you to... Maybe it's to be a better co-worker and to represent Christ better every day when you go to work. Maybe it's to be a better parent. Maybe it's to be a better uh, child. Maybe it's to just be better in that regard. Maybe it has to do with being a more involved member of the church family. God's message to you today, it might well be that, hey, God would be saying, what I need from you is to surrender your life to me today for the very first time. I need you to become a Christian. I need you to surrender. I need you to obey. I need you to be baptized into Christ. That might be God's most powerful and important message to you today. So again, I ask, what does God most want you to hear? As this year ends and a new one gets ready to begin. Before Bradley leads us in the song that's been selected, I'm going to stop talking for just a moment. And I'm going to allow all of us to have a moment to pray silently, to meditate, to think about what it is that that God might be trying to communicate. Meditate with me. Pray. Let's be silent together. Whatever you're thinking about today, if it's the kind of response to God where your church family needs to be a part of that or you would like your church family to be a part of that, if you need this church family to be praying with you or for you, you have that opportunity. Shepherds will be happy to pray with you one-on-one if that's your need. If you're ready to obey the gospel, you can uh, let that be known as we sing or you can let somebody know as soon as the service ends. But if you need to make a change in your life today, that will position you to have a great 2016. Listen to God's message as we stand and as we sing.